Hello everyone. Do you like reading? Do you like walking? Do you like thinking about your life? Then we have got something for you. Our Common Ground Pilgrimages are going to be announcing our slate of fall and winter 2020 pilgrimages on March 2nd. So if you sign up for our newsletter at readingandwalkingwith.com, you will be the first to know when registration launches and only people on our newsletter will get 30 minutes early registration access and it's first come first serve. So signing up first might mean the difference between getting a spot or not. There's less than 20 spots on each pilgrimage and one of them might be involving me and a book that we all love. So you're talking about you leading a pilgrimage with he's just not that into you? A hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I'm there. So that's readingandwalkingwith.com. Sign up to the newsletter. Be the first to know about our pilgrimages this year. Chapter 23 Christmas on the Closed Ward. Was this why Dumbledore would no longer meet Harry's eyes? Did he expect to see Voldemort staring out of them, afraid perhaps that their vivid green might suddenly turn to scarlet with cat like slits for pupils? Harry remembered how the snake like face of Voldemort. I'm Casper Terkyle. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Friends, we're so excited that we now have a Harry Potter and the Sacred Text Facebook group. It has been a while coming, but it is so lovely. Like hundreds of people already in there just sharing their story and like asking people like, what do you think about this? Or do you live in the Tennessee state? Because so do I and I want to start a group. It's awesome. It really is. And we would like to thank Maggie Needham and Judith Giller-Linewall for really taking the helm of this Facebook group and just come and ask to join and you will be admitted. And we're so excited to see you in there. It's called Harry Potter and the Sacred Text Common Room because we don't believe in the houses. That's right. It's a cross-house common room. Yeah, finally. We also have a couple of, like, weekend reflection opportunities, which we are so excited about, especially after hanging out with people for our weekend in Orlando. Yeah, there's only seven spots left at the Scriptio Divina workshop from April 25th to the 28th. And this is really an experience to deepen your reading as a sacred practice, but also to explore writing as a sacred practice. And that's been something I've been learning a little bit from Vanessa. And I have to say, I love it because it's a way in which I get to really co-create with the things that inspire me. So think about Florilegia, you know, as a practice where we're already kind of choosing bits of text and putting them together in our in our own way. This is really taking it just the next step to think about journaling, to think about letter writing, to think about all the ways in which writing really helps us deepen and explore our souls. And Stephanie Paulsell is going to be co-facilitating that weekend with me. And she is like really one of the modern founders of the idea of Scripsio Divina. And she has developed a way to do Scripsio Divina based on Lectio Divina, which is obviously our favorite reading <laughs> practice. And it's just incredible the spiritual technologies that she has come up with to use writing as a rigorous way to continue the like great path of writing as a spiritual exercise. So I'm really excited to spend a weekend doing yoga and eating delicious vegetarian food and doing writing practices with Stephanie. And then also from May 24th to May 27th, we will be in Rhinebeck, New York at the Omega Institute. 
And there we'll be deepening our reading practices. So we'll be doing sacred imagination. We'll be doing pardes. We'll be working as a big group and small groups. And we'll be doing a blessing workshop, which I'm really excited to share with you all, where we take what we do at the end of every episode and start to think about how blessings live in our own life and how we can learn the art of blessing for the people that we love around us. And this will be a very spacious retreat. So if you're looking for some time away from work or from family or other responsibilities, or you maybe have a creative project that you want to take with you to come work on, this retreat at the Omega Institute, which is beautiful, is a perfect fit for that. So for more information on all of these opportunities, go to harrypottersacredtext.com and click on the orange buttons. We'll hope to see you there. Don't just click on random orange buttons. Click on, like, the right one for what you're interested in. So, Casper, when I was in the third grade, there was a big drought, and we had a lesson on the drought in the third grade and different things that you can do to help with the drought. So, for example, one of the things that I was taught that I just remember my mom noticing pretty much immediately is that you can turn off the shower at various moments in your showering experience, so like while scrubbing your hair. And my mom, like, remarked on it. She was like, you turned the shower on and off a lot tonight. And I was like, yeah, it was just like something I was, like, embarrassed about but felt like I had to do. Once you start noticing water going down the drain, you're just like, that is just water going down the drain and it's like never coming back. And I don't think I realized like how much this had traveled with me until a couple of years ago. I, w- I was making soup in front of my partner and, you know, the recipe said something like put two quarts of water in the pot. And so I just started filling the pot with water. And then I was like, oh, it actually matters that it's the exact right amount. And so I pulled out another bowl and started measuring cups of water out of the pot into the other bowl. And Peter, like, kissed me on the forehead and was, like, my little California girl. And I was like, what? Why is this weird? And he's like, just pour the pot of water down the drain and start over. And so that moment just, like, made me more aware of how I am around water. And then I got into a fight with one of my beautiful support staff people recently on freshman move-in day because she very fairly was like, move-in day is going to be really hot this year. Can we please buy bottles of water for the students and the parents on the day they move in? And I was like, no. As always, I will provide pitchers of water and cups and people can drink what they need. But like, I will not let these plastic bottles like go out of my sight and people just like pour leftover water down the drain. Whereas like the pitchers, I know I will water my plants with them. I will wash my dishes with them. Like I know what will happen with the extra water. And she looked at me like I am a complete control freak, which was the moment that I realized that I am, right? Like pitchers of water will also create waste. To me, it's about the idea that like I will know how to get rid of this extra water, whereas I don't trust other people to dispose safely of their extra water. And so I would just like to admit, as we are discussing this theme of control this week, that I am not fixing the drought in the world by doing this, right? And, like, I know that both intellectually and statistically and, like, whenever I walk by a pipe that's burst and more water is, like, guzzling out of that pipe in 10 seconds than I would waste in a million showers, I know that. But also, if everybody behaved this way, 
we would live in a radically different world. And so I think that I might be using this episode as like a defense of being a controlling neurotic person because I think maybe we would live in a better world if I got to decide how we all used water. I think this is super compelling, especially because we are extraordinarily wasteful uh, when it comes to water as well as other things. So I, I think you have a compelling case to make. And at the same time, where are we controlling and where should we not be? I think that's going to be the conversation we'll explore. Well, I know a way to exhibit self-control. Uh. Can you time me for exactly 30 seconds, please? Putting 30 seconds on the clock. Recap starting in three, two, one, go. So Mr. Weasley's in the hospital. They're all hanging out for like Christmas at um, Sirius's house. Sirius is so happy. Harry is avoiding everybody. Then they go to the visit Mr. Weasley. Mr. Weasley's like, I'm trying a thing called stitches. And Mrs. Weasley loses her mind. They go and they accidentally visit Gilderoy Lockhart, who it's like so sad is like signing autographs to no one. And then they run into Neville's parents. And um, there's a really awkward interaction where Hermione, Ron, and Ginny are like, I didn't know, did you know? And Harry's like, I knew, but I promise not to tell. Do you know what? That's actually the title of my autobiography, Autographs to No One. (laughs) I want a copy. (laughs) Can I get a signed copy? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Okay, Casper, are you ready to fill in a blank or two? Yes. On your mark, get set. Go. God rest ye merry hippogriffs, let nothing you dismay. This is an actual carol that Sirius sings in his house. Creature seems to be missing, but like maybe later is found. Uh, Hermione makes a little quilt for him, and we learn that he like lives and collects old pictures of the Black family. It's all very spooky. Harry's still freaking out because why does nobody talk to him? And like there's, you know, like like he wants to run away, but then he stays because a painting tells him to stay. Um, Harry's having lots of feelings. And then, yeah, they go to the hospital and they see the werewolf person again. And Lupin talks to him, which is really sweet. Are you just going to keep going? You know, there's just a lot to say. (laughs) So, Casper, the biggest point that happens in this chapter that reminded me of the story I ended up telling was Molly's reaction to Arthur's healing. Arthur has been, like, told to do several things, and he is at St. Mungo's, which is a wizard hospital for magical maladies. And in his, like, constant obsession with muggles, he tries stitches, which stitches do work. Hermione says this, right? But stitches only work for non-magical ailments. And what I saw here was Molly coming off as, like, very controlling and very shrill, so much so that, like, the kids all leave because she's like, how dare you, Arthur? But also, she's right, And so I don't know if, like, what's most interesting to me is the gender dynamics of this, that, like, we see women as controlling when they're just being correct, or if, like, controlling becomes something else when you are right. Okay, first of all, a couple of things. Like, Arthur's been bleeding for days at this point, and, like, none of the magical solutions have worked yet. So to some extent, I appreciate his openness to alternative treatments. Yeah. Um, and there's clearly a younger doctor who's, like, radical on the ward and like, is learning from muggle treatment. So I just love that. So I don't think he's, like, too strange for wanting to try that. But 
more interestingly, as you say, is Molly's reaction. Like, is it that she's afraid of anything outside of her known world? So she wants to have a good understanding of everything that's happening. Because, of course, on the macro scale, she's not in control, right? Voldemort's back. The war is on. You know, Percy's not home for Christmas. Percy is not only not home, he has sent back his Christmas gift. And isn't visiting his father in hospital. Having nearly died. Yeah. Percy. Even I am being tested in my love for you. (laughs) Nothing can break the bounds of my affection, but you're really trying. Yeah. So I I can see this being a way in which she's asserting some sense of, you know, sense making in a world that doesn't make sense. I do like the idea that there's sort of like healthy controlling and unhealthy controlling. And a healthy controlling is when you're like, no, please don't stab yourself with stitches when we don't know that this is what will help. And what you're saying is that you don't think it is that, that it's her potentially trying to exert control over something that she actually doesn't know a lot about. Maybe this would help. Nothing else is really helping. And she is projecting her own lack of control on Percy's behavior, on the fact that her husband was attacked, on the fact that she can't protect her own children on this, like, one micro thing. I mean, trying to control something— is about throwing power around to some extent. And so we have to be very certain that we're doing it for the right reasons. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I mean, I feel like there's so many ways when something is going on in my life that I can't control that I'll turn to something small that I can control. You know, maybe I'll get really insistent on tidying or... I love doing the washing up, right? Because I can see that there's something which was dirty that is now clean. And I, and it, I know where it goes. It belongs on this shelf. Those things are very calming for my brain. And so maybe to some extent, Molly is just like, you know, I, I just want to. <laughs> like, well, I just want to. Can we we are like fighting the government and we are fighting our kids school and we are like questioning everything in our lives, can we please not question doctors? Can there be somewhere that I'm handing over the control and the power to someone else, right? Like, is there somewhere that I don't have to mother, right? But that depends how we read Dr. Pye's and Arthur's relationship, right? Because the way I had looked at it was that not that Arthur had, like, talked him into doing it, but that this doctor was experimental and found a willing subject. And so it was more collaborative, if not, you know, the doctor's idea. In which case, the bigger point, Vanessa, that really resonates for me is the way in which our medical system in in our muggle world is very much about specialization and isolation. While, you know, the growing field or maybe the re-emerging field of alternative or complementary medicine or holistic health is, you know, you're looking for the connections between things. So often when people have something that they aren't able to fix through the traditional medicine system, they'll seek out maybe Reiki or acupuncture or, or all sorts of like alternative methods, which I think have something to say about control. A, of course, that we're eager to figure out what's wrong with our bodies and to fix them. But B, like this sense that there are things that we don't understand. And so then we kind of freak out because we don't know how to control them. Well, so I will say for me, in the moments in which I have sought out alternative medicine is when I feel like I've given up all control. Mm. And I'm like, I will hand myself over to something that I don't understand. It's almost desperation, right? It's like, I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't understand acupuncture at all. But like, if you can help me, go ahead. Like, look at my tongue. Like, whatever it takes. Do they put 
pins in your tongue? No, they look at your tongue to diagnose you. Wow. It was an acupuncturist who helped me got to the right doctors to get diagnosed with endometriosis. Because Amazing. she was just someone who sat and listened to me for 45 minutes and like mm. just kept asking me questions. She was just someone who took the time to listen to me. So I am pro-complementary alternative holistic medicine. I think that it's super important. I just feel like Mrs. Weasley thinks that Arthur is, like, bored in the hospital and has, like, found a conspirator in this, like, alternative medicines and that muggle cures do not work for wizard ailments. And this is just like, can you not be acting like a child right now? Well, and what is revealing, like looking at the text, is that when the family arrives, he asks for healer Smethic, not for trainee healer Pi, because it's it's continued to bleed. And so at this moment, when it's clear that the stitches aren't working, he asks for someone else. <laughs> it's time to call in an expert. <laughs> Which I think that the other thing, right, is that this is pointing to is that even experts don't know how to heal things, right? And that that is also about realizing a lack of control. And I think that Arthur is someone who maybe has more capacity right now to handle that uncertainty and is like, well, they don't know what's wrong with me, so let's experiment. Whereas (laughs) Molly is like, I am at my wit's end with experimentation. For Arthur, this seems like more of a fun game, which Molly just does not have the capacity for right now. Yeah, that makes sense. So the trio and Ginny leave Mr. and Mrs. Weasley to go and get some tea and get an elevator to a different floor where there's a cafeteria. And on their way, they meet Gilderoy Lockhart, who is in such an interesting place. Obviously, we know that since Chamber of Secrets, he's gone away. You know, the the spell backfired from one's wand. But overwhelmingly, Lockhart's world is one where he does not have any control, right? He is bounded in where he's allowed to go. The sad thing is that he has, like, no visitors. And I I think the thing that really struck me on, on looking at Lockhart in this way is that someone who was so controlling about their image and how people might perceive him from afar, right? He has all these fans. There's actually no one in his life who wants to come and spend time with him now that he is, you know, not the famous, amazing wizard that he said he was. Yeah, and I was just thinking, you know, there's a moment where Harry and Ron are sort of reckoning with why Lockhart is this way. Mm. And it's basically like, well, I don't really feel guilty because, like, his own spell backfired. And so there is this real moment of, like, he was trying to control their memory. Yeah. And, like, in becoming so controlling of others, he's lost all control of himself. Mm. And I think that that is something, right, that, like— If I were to keep obsessing about water to the point where I was trying to control everyone around me, then, like, I would not be trying to control the water in my life. My obsession with water would be controlling my life. And then when there was a huge flood, I would not come looking for you because it'd be like, well, that's just desserts for Vanessa. That's really brutal. But (laughs) I do love that poetic justice that I hadn't really seen in the text before you just said this, that it is his own spell that puts him there. And neither of the boys feel guilty about it. And you know what? Maybe they shouldn't. The thing that they should feel guilty about is that it was their recklessness that broke Ron's wand. So it was their negligence that had some play here. And I think the other thing that I really like about this encounter with Lockhart is that we see the repercussions for the students' actions. Mm. Like, we never meet, like, Quirrell's grieving mother who's, like, sad that her son died. We don't see the consequences. We don't see the diggeries again. And, like, obviously, I don't think that Ron and Harry and Hermione have, like, caused this harm. They are in this violent world and are doing the best that they can. But 
they participated in a real violence here with Lockhart. And so I appreciate that we are being confronted with him. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that theme continues as we go further down the corridor and we we meet Neville's parents for the first time. You know, that's I think why I love this chapter is because we do see the impacts of the war, both the one that's just about to start now with with Arthur, but also the previous war that, you know, that had finished. We see this very, very painful, but also tender moment with Neville and his grandmother visiting his parents on Christmas Day and the moment when Neville's mother comes out and gives him this sweet wrapper and his grandmother says like, oh, throw it away. And Neville puts it in his pocket. You know, it says so much about Neville's sweetness and and also courage to like collect something which to the rest of the world looks like trash and to, to say like, this is precious and I'm going to keep this. But yeah, I mean, Harry has obviously known about the Longbottoms and and has very rightly not shared that story with Ron and Hermione. But the moment they hear Neville or Longbottom, both Ron and Hermione are like, "Oh my God, it's Neville! Let's be friends!" Hi guys, and it's this... Ron especially. <laughs> what a mess! So <laughs> like, come on, Ron, come on. And so in that moment, Neville loses control of, of his story, right? He is really protected. Who gets to know about this? Harry has followed Dumbledore's rules of you know not not sharing the story. And now Neville's confronted with this kind of crossing of worlds and he's he's no longer in control. And all he can do is kind of just make it through and walk to the end of the corridor and leave. And so I'm wondering, like, when we lose control of a narrative, you know, what do we do? Oh, that's such a hard question. I mean, hospitals are such a place of a loss of control, right? Like, I know that hospitals put IVs in your arm in case they need to give you medicine very quickly. But I'm always like, you are doing this to tether me to my bed, so I can't control anything, right? Like, whenever I'm in a hospital, either as a patient or as a visitor, I feel so strongly how little control you have. I mean, even if you're going in for, like, an ankle checkup, you get put into one of those smocks where you're in your underwear so that you can't just leave because you'd be in your underwear. (laughs) It's it's totally true. They are systems of control. Yeah, and... I just see control happening, like attempts at control happening all over this dynamic, right? Where Neville's grandmother is trying to control Neville's behavior, right? right? And is like, why haven't you told your friends? Which I think she's coming to the wrong conclusion as to why Neville maybe hasn't told his friends. But also she's trying to control the story of her son's legacy, right? She's like, my son was a great wizard. He was a great auror and so was his wife. So she wants to control the story by, like, sharing how great they were. And Neville wants to honor their privacy and manage all sorts of other feelings. But And also they're present, you know, because he values, right, in accepting that sweet wrapper that he puts in his pocket. He is honoring them for who they are now in a way that his grandmother just can't. Yeah, but I think both are important. I mean, I feel a lot of that tension with the legacy of my grandmother. My mom remembers my grandmother, obviously, as like a much younger woman than I do. And my grandmother was like not healed enough to be a good mother, but she was healed enough by the time I came around Mm. to be a good grandmother. And I don't try to change my mom's perception of my grandma because it was her mom and she was the way she was. And but nor does my mom try to take away what I knew. And so I think that putting mm. both legacies in conversation with each other is important. And Neville and his grandmother, I think, aren't aren't necessarily communicating on that level yet because Neville is 15. 
but I think that both are true, right? Like, you want the world to see, like, this is not who they could have been. A violence was done to them, and they had a whole different trajectory, and they're not just silent patients. And Neville's like, but this is enough for me. And I just, I think both stories matter. But here's the thing. Neville's grandmother doesn't allow him to have his reality because she says to the four of them, Neville's told me all about you, helped him out of a few sticky spots, haven't you? He's a good boy, but he hasn't got his father's talent, I'm afraid to say. And just that just crushing put down, which for her is like a throwaway comment. It totally helps me understand why A, Neville is the way he is, but B, why Neville wouldn't share the story about his parents. Like, I think it's in some ways probably comforting for him to like be with them. And he's the one who's capable when he's with his parents, right? So there's something secretive about it, which I understand that it, it, it would be threatened if he brought his grandmother into his reality in some way. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's a terrible thing to say. I think parents do often say terrible things out of fear. Mm. I I don't know if you find this, but like in advising students, they'll say to me sometimes like, oh no, I have to be a doctor. Absolutely. Right? And there's like a story that they've been told that like, well, in order to do X, Y, and Z, and in order to honor the sacrifices my parents have made, in order to make sure that no matter what, I will be able to support my parents, I have to take this class this semester, that class next semester, and, like, here's my 15-year plan, and, like, any sacrifice is worth it. It's just so, like, mind-boggling as an advisor to try to sit there and, like, honor those very real feelings that students have and also say to them, like, I don't think your parents would want you to be sacrificing your health. Like, I think they would want you to eat. And But I also think parents who set up those narratives are like, I don't want you to suffer. I want you to be middle class. I want you to be able to own a house one day. I don't want you to live in debt in fear of not having electricity or food. So I think that we can often tell controlling and detrimental narratives to each other in an attempt to protect. Right. It's often it's about protection. It's about safety. But terrible things are said in that vein, right? Right. Like, well, I don't want you to be gay because it's easier to be straight. You know, like, I'm not fat shaming you. I want you to be healthy. And it's like, well, just because it comes from a good place doesn't mean that the impact that you're having isn't incredibly detrimental and controlling in a not helpful at all way. A hundred percent. Vanessa, we should talk about the other big moment of control that happens right at the beginning of this chapter where Harry is still freaking out about this connection that he has with Voldemort, right? He was the snake attacking Arthur. What's going on? Is he being controlled completely? Is is he being possessed? And what really struck me was the language that Harry uses to describe his experience of being controlled. He felt dirty, contaminated. Like he he literally says, you know, he wants to leave Grimmauld Place to go back to, to the Dursleys because he's worried that he will maim and injure people. Um, and, you, <laughs> and I love that he's like, if I maim and injure the Dursleys. <laughs> that's fine. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but just that sense of like, I'm dangerous. I can't be trusted. That just really struck me. And like when you lose control of yourself, how do you live in the world then? You know, so I, yeah, it, uh, I don't know. It just had such painful echoes for me. And I really understood Harry's sense of just wanting to get out of there, you know, to protect the people he loves. He has to separate himself. Now, turns out none of that has to happen. He can stay. He gets to eat breakfast. Everything's better. But just in that moment, you know, like, what do we do when we think we are a danger to the people we love? 
So a, a PDF that I just like have saved on my desktop is called 10 Ways to Untwist Your Thinking. <gasps> I love that. <laughs> Can we upload that to the website? Because everyone needs to see this. I have found it so helpful. So it's the document I email to my students most frequently. And it's also just something that like at this point I like have done this to myself for long enough that I can interrupt it pretty quickly where it's like, is the conclusion you're coming to based on the facts? List all the facts. And you're like, right, I can't contaminate other people with my depression. Like depression is not contagious. I am not depressing to be around, right? Like all of the twisted thinking patterns that we get into when we are in these like, I mean, we've talked about this before on the podcast, like doom spirals or shame spirals or really unhealthy thinking patterns. Voldemort spirals. Voldemort spirals. It's like years of practice at getting better, of pulling ourselves out of these things and of being in close relationship with people who can help us pull out, right? That's what I love about the scene is that Harry doesn't pull himself out of that, like, errorful thinking. It's the painting and it's even Dumbledore at a distance who says, do not leave, you know. Well, and then Hermione coming, right? That's right. She literally goes to him and is like, everybody says that you're ignoring them and, like, being rude. I have questions as to whether Hermione is making a good choice here and not going skiing with her family. I think that this is like a codependent sacrifice and she lies to her parents in order to make it. And like, I'm not quite sure why she does it. I do think it's very beneficial to Harry and it pulls him out. And her one true love, Ron's dad, has been attacked. But like, I don't know that I approve of Hermione's choice here. But Yeah, I think that we see the benefits of Harry surrounding himself with loving people and that hopefully over time you start to notice when you're just spiraling. I just think that there are also times when we are a danger to ourselves and to others and that we don't have infrastructure set up to take care of those moments either, right? Yeah, and it might be like you're too drunk or you're too tired to drive or, you know, like you're distracted and you're not paying attention with your chopping knife or whatever it is, right? Like there are moments where we really can hurt each other. But it's, I would say, nearly always, it's it's probably a story we're telling ourselves, even with the kind of evidence that we have here from Harry. And, and it takes a moment where Ginny says like, well, did you think about talking to me? I'm the one who's actually being possessed by Voldemort. Let's look at the facts. Have you got hours where you don't know where right. you are? No. Okay, get back in your box, Mr. Potter, you know. Oh, yeah. She has, like, memorized this cognitive behavioral therapy <laughs> document where she's like, let's list facts, <laughs> right? I love and, it. And, and, like, first fact proves him wrong. And it's like, oh, I guess you're not a danger. I will say that later in this book, Harry ends up being a danger to everybody else. Yes. And for exactly what he's afraid of. And I think that that is the most dangerous thing, right? Where you have one piece of evidence that says, but look, I've hurt someone I love by saying a really terrible thing when I was stressed. So I should never be allowed any of my friends ever again. Because, like, sometimes I think that's the trickiest is when you have one piece of bad evidence, And you have to be like, no, I still deserve to be around people. I'm just somebody who said a hurtful thing once. Like, Harry is about to make a really big mistake. And I still think he deserves to be around people. Yeah, absolutely. Vanessa, it's time for us to turn to our spiritual practice. And we're continuing with Florilegia. And so we've both picked just a little sparklet, a piece of text from this chapter, which 
stood out to us in some way uh, of interest. And so we're going to read them individually and then we're going to put them together to see what meaning we can make and how it helps us understand the chapter. And then we're going to read them the other way around to see if that helps us see it in a new light. So, Vanessa, what did you find as your sparklet? My sparklet was, I'm the weapon. Oh, what a killer sentence. Yeah. (laughs) It's time that you have kids. You already have the sense of humor for it. (laughs) What about you, Casper? I chose the phrase, good haul this year. Oh, God. Those two together say Uh. nothing good. Good haul of weapons this year. (laughs) Well, let's put them together. So it's, I'm the weapon, good haul this year. Remind me where your phrase comes from. The phrase that I chose comes from pretty early in the chapter when Harry is realizing he's like, what could Voldemort be in search of? What is this other weapon that he needs? And then he has this epiphany and he's like, oh, I'm the weapon. What about you? What What is the good haul this year? So my phrase also is from right near the beginning. Everyone's opening Christmas presents and Ron describes his kind of collection of goodies as a good haul this year. <laughs> He is just the classiest kid in the shed. I mean, I did the same thing when I was a kid. I would count my presents. I was that kid. You were Dudley. Yeah, I hate myself. This is such a Ron as Dudley moment. (gasps) That is so true. He is like counting his presents. See, there's a little Dursley in all of us, my friends. Absolutely. (laughs) So I chose this from this chapter because for me, it's such a domestic peaceful moment, right? Like, who gets to think about how many Christmas presents they have? It's someone who doesn't have a lot of other worries, (laughs) right? And even though Arthur has been grievously injured, you know, he's in the hospital, he's getting better. I think Ron feels safe to kind of talk about this stuff. So it just reminded me of the, even in the midst of the growing dangers, actually, Ron feels pretty okay. And and I, I like that. So that's why I chose my little snippet. How about you? Why did you choose I'm the Weapon? I'm trying to think why I chose this. And it's, I feel like there are often realizations like this, like something that you've pointed to a lot every once in a while on social media. I'll say to myself, like, I'm the product, right? Like, my time is the thing being sold. Right. Um, or I'll think, oh, I'm the adult in the room, right? Like, this is on me. Mm. I, I find moments like that often so helpful And Harry is right. He is the weapon. And I'm not sure what he's supposed to do with that realization. And so I think that at this point in my life, I often know what to do with these moments of realization. I mostly live in fear of the times that I don't know what's going on. But when I'm like, oh, I'm the adult. Okay, that means I start doing X, Y, and Z. Right. And this just reminded me of what it was like to be younger and be like, I'm depressed oh, I have no idea what that means I do now. Whereas now I'm like, oh, I'm depressed. Okay, you're allowed two days in bed. And if you still want to be in bed after two days and walking the dog during those two days, then you call your therapist, right? Like I sort of like know how to get myself out of it and what stop gaps to put into place and when to be patient with myself and when not to be. And this just reminded me of those moments earlier in my life and now in my life too, where like something occurs to me and I'm like, but what does that mean? And so I love clarity and this is the worst kind of clarity because it's a clarity of the diagnosis and not of the cure. Mm -hmm. What I love about what you've just shared, Vanessa, is sometimes I feel like 
a spark that will stand out to us. And often I'll choose a sentence or a phrase without really knowing why until I start thinking about why does it resonate. And then I'm like, oh, <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I remember one of my first realizations of depression and the sentence that came to me was I am not functioning. It was like I am not taking basic care of myself and I didn't know what to do with that. And then the like relief that came, I, like, I don't think I figured out the most logical thing to do. I was in St. Louis and I was like, I will drive home to Los Angeles. <laughs> that is the thing to do. It wasn't a logical next step, but just I can remember the moments in my life where it was like, oh, I'm the bad one in this relationship. Oh, I'm the whatever. Right. And that hopefully that leads to some clarity in terms of the next step, which, right. which as you said, Harry doesn't have here. Right. Okay. So let's just step back and read them together. I'm the weapon, good haul this year. I'm the weapon, good haul this year. I mean, just like all sorts of violent movies are coming to mind, right? Mm. Like I'm the weapon of like the Terminator and like here are all the dead bodies I've hauled in this year. <laughs> like, that's the only thing that's occurring to me. Or like, look at all the cocaine I've brought across the border. I'm suddenly thinking of the X-Men because there's always this new generation of, like, mutants who arrive and, you know, they're seen by society as the weapon, but, like, actually their powers could be used and, and they want to be used for good. Because what Harry is saying in part is that, like, it's not his magical skills necessarily that make him a powerful weapon, but there is something that sets him apart that makes him the weapon. And I think that's that's interesting in the sense that, like, what is it that we're collecting well, and Voldemort is, like, having a good haul this year, right? In a terrible way. Like, he's killed Cedric. He's attacked Mr. Weasley. He has umbrage in, in Hogwarts. Like, he is having a productive year. Yeah, especially when we think about what was the first time when he called back all the Death Eaters, right, around Cedric's body just before he wanted to kill Harry at the end of book four. So, like, six months ago. Exactly. I'm pretty sure there's more Death Eaters returning to his fold you know, with every passing week at this point. Those two things in conversation with each other made me think that Harry says, I'm the weapon. He's Voldemort's weapon, but Voldemort is the weapon, right? Voldemort is the weaponizing thing, right? And so, like, I wish that Harry had different language of, like, I'm the thing that he's going to weaponize, not I am the weapon, right? It's like, I'm a person with depression. I'm not a depressed person, right? They're like, often we define ourselves by these qualities when they don't have to be the thing that defines us. And we can like own whatever it is that we want to own in ourselves. But like, regardless of whether or not Harry is actually the weapon, the fact that he feels like the weapon in this moment, I wish he had the like psychic ability to complicate that narrative for himself in this moment. Let's turn it around and see if we see something different. So now it reads, good haul this year, I'm the weapon. <laughs> also, get some butter from the grocery store. <laughs> you know what it reminds me of is like a board game. Like, oh, you're the dog and you're the old lady and I'm the weapon. Or like, it's a murder mystery game. Yeah. Like, surprise, I'm the rope. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love that. And so it's actually like, it's very playful. Because when you talk about like having a good haul, right, maybe Monopoly or like yeah. you've won the jackpot or like actually there's a lot of play imagery that's coming to mind for me. Yeah, no, I really like that. <laughs> I'm the weapon. 
I have a question about this because I've always been surprised how much, as a human culture, we're interested in like gruesome murder stories. I mean, I've always loved Agatha Christie, and I recently started reading John Le Carre for some good like spy thrillers. But I've never really understood our kind of like crime reality sensationalism. You know, podcasts really blew up around serial, especially in these other kind of live murder stories that are being uncovered. Like, what is it about us that makes us? Look at these kind of gruesome events as play in a way. So it's like super not my thing, right? I read romance novels where <laughs> nothing bad happens is like the whole idea of the genre. Yes. So it's not my thing. My my understanding is that for like a lot of women, a lot of women watch shows like SVU, and I think that it's almost like looking in the mirror and saying Bloody Mary three times. It's right, like if I confront the worst possible thing that could happen to me, I will notice the signs and like it won't happen to me. It's like a way of warding off. It's a way of controlling. Yeah, that's gosh. Yes, that hadn't occurred to me. But so that is why I think we're fascinated. And then I also think we're just like the death drive. Right. Mm. I mean, I like Freud. We can talk about that another time. But like, right. I just think we're interested in our own deaths. But something that occurred to me is when you suddenly see yourself through somebody else's eyes. Yes. Like, like, right, if I if I break up with someone, like, to their friends, I'm the bad guy. Yeah. And, like, and I should be. Like, I'm the person who hurt their friend. And it's still really hard whenever you see that, though, right? Who, like, didn't do anything wrong by breaking up with someone amicably. But, like, right. oh, I'm the bad guy. I'm the weapon. You need to be rejected in order for them to feel okay. Right. Or like, I feel like I do that with students also sometimes where it's just like, oh, do you need me to be the bad guy right now? That's fine. I'll break up the potty. Right. And so it's like, I can imagine being like, I'm the weapon. Fine. (laughs) That's how Lucius Malfoy sits around (laughs) in his evenings like, okay, you want an evil financier? I'm that guy. (laughs) Well, I just remember, like, as a teenager, I often didn't want to go out. I wanted to stay in and watch a movie with my dad. or Just as a teenager? (laughs) 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 So I still feel this way. But as a teenager, I think I, like, really wasn't supposed to feel this way, but I did. So I I often wanted to stay in and either watch a foreign movie with my dad or play Scrabble with my mom. And my mom would always say, make me the bad guy. Like, my friends would call and say, can you come out? My mom would say, make me the bad guy. And it was such a gift. And I'd be like, sorry, Nikki won't let me. That's adorable. And so, like, make me the weapon, right? It's like, I'm the bad cop. I love that. So, Casper, something that's striking me is that we both picked these sentences in some way because we feel as though they, like, revealed something not great about ourselves Mm. that we like, saw in ourselves. And I think what I've realized is that, like, this sentence used to be a way I actually felt about myself of, like, I am the weapon. I'm the depressed friend who never follows through and, like, all sorts of bad things. And now I'm someone who's willing, like, to your point of, like, to turn it into a game piece where I'm like, oh, do you need a bad cop? Go ahead. (laughs) Do you need, like... A chaplain? I can do that. Like, I now I see myself as somebody who can inhabit all of these different positions. That's really nice. Yeah, I, I, when I started reading mine, I was thinking like, oh, so selfish, counting presents, you know. And in fact, now seeing it within that bigger context of like, actually, this is a great sign that everything is okay. This is like a romance novel, a story where nothing bad happens. It's just the number of Christmas presents that you stress about. Well, and also, you were a kid... <laughs> 
who started by counting presents, and now you are someone who's excellent at isolating all the gifts in other people. Oh, stop it. It's true. <laughs> Our voicemail this week is from Kelsey Moore. Hi, Casper and Vanessa. This is Kelsey from Utah. Um, I just wanted to share a few thoughts I had from the In the Hogshead chapter and offer a blessing for Harry for not hiding his scars. You were both discussing Harry's experience of being recognized by his scar and suggesting he could or should hide his scar with a hat or his hair or using makeup so that maybe these awkward experiences could be avoided so he could stop having those awkward conversations with people or awkward looks given to him. I was born with a genetic blood disorder called PKD. Um, and as a side effect of this disorder, I constantly have um, some shade of yellow or green going on in my skin color, um, some days looking more yellow or green than others. I have tried many different types of makeup. I have been <laughs> banned by my mother from wearing the color yellow since I was a very young child. And, you know, when I get my picture taken, there's always so much Photoshop involved and try different medications and, and things like that. Anything that I could do to try and cover up with just different degrees of success. And every one of my attempts to cover up this, this yellowness has a trade-off. Sometimes, I mean, usually it makes me more tired than um, I already am from dealing with chronic illness. But the trade-off of not covering up is that I do experience those those awkward encounters, random people on the street talking to me and asking me, are you okay? Or asking, what's wrong with your face? Assuming that I'm wearing makeup and for some reason I want to look really yellow. And um, oftentimes I've had conversations with friends and family and even complete strangers about you know, this essential oil you could try to look better or, you know, are you actually seeing a doctor or um, maybe if you try this or that, maybe you'll look a little bit better and a little healthier and just a little less abnormal and have less of those com awkward conversations of just random people coming up and talking to you and, and asking you why you look that way. And it's just very socially and emotionally trying the whole thing. Um, so I want to offer a blessing for Harry, um, for not covering up who he is, for enduring those awkward looks and those awkward conversations, and also a blessing for anyone who um, looks different and who can't or chooses not to cover up their scars or whatever it is that makes them look different from other people. Again, thank you so much for all of your hard work on Harry Potter. Kelsey, thank you so much for that beautiful and really helpful message. I think you have reframed that for me. It absolutely should not be on Harry. It should be on everybody else to just, like, treat him with dignity mm. um, that we all deserve. Thanks to everyone who sent us voicemails um, this week. There were just so many thoughtful comments. We have an amazing community. So, Casper, we now have the chance to bless somebody from the text. Who would you like to bless this week? I really resonated with Sirius this this chapter. He was so excited to have everyone come to Grimmel Place and like he's singing and he's putting up decorations and and it reminded me of the joy of hosting. You know, Sean and I live in a very small apartment right now on campus and we stayed home over Christmas and like the heating gets turned down and we were <laughs> sitting there in front of a little space heater being like, 
we didn't make good choices. <laughs> you know, I think the thing we've missed most is hosting people in, in our home. And we're so looking forward to doing that next year when we'll have more space. So I, I just... Sirius has all of this space, but no one ever wants to come. And so, or is able to come because he's in a political hiding situation. So a blessing for Sirius and anyone who loves to host and bring people together and, you know, who has their heating turned down over Christmas. <laughs> How about you, Vanessa? Who do you want to bless? I'm going to bless Ginny for the most awesome moment in any book ever, which is when she schools Harry, she's like, oh, are you spiraling about something where I'm actually the world's only living expert? <laughs> That sounds really hard for you. Good thing I'm right here, you dodo. And Harry goes, I forgot. And she says, the best line ever, lucky you. Boom. It's like everything, right? It's like American race relations of like, I'm colorblind. Lucky you that you get to be colorblind. Like, oh, I forgot that you're the victim of sexual assault. Lucky you that you get to just forget that, right? Like, it just in this, like, concise, brilliant moment is like, how privileged are you to get to forget? And I just think that she's amazing. That's all. Hashtag Team Ginny. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or come and join the hundreds of people supporting us on Patreon. We love reading our reviews on iTunes and hearing your voicemails, and we hope to see you at one of our live shows in California and Indianapolis. Next week, we'll be reading Chapter 4, Occlumency, through the theme of curiosity. This episode was produced by Ariana Nedelman, Casper Terkal, and Vanessa Zoltan, with editing support from Ariana Martinez. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we are part of Night Vale Presents. This week, we'd like to thank Kelsey Moore for this week's voicemail, Julia Argy, Maggie Needham, Danny Egan, and Stephanie Paulsell. Thanks so much, and we'll talk to you next week. So you're welcome, everyone. I am now the water czar. <laughs> All of the, like, young Vanessa was concerned about earthquakes. So young Vanessa cute. Was about <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Any issue. California was not the right place for you to grow up. <laughs> That's hilarious. Volcanoes. <laughs> <laughs> I